children's church through the summer for the older children, so we will now open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. And while you turn there, I, I have a question to ask you, a, a scenario to run by you to ask you to think through what you would do. I think it's common enough in the body, it's certainly common in my experience. I mean, imagine that you're meeting a, a Christian friend for a cup of coffee, or maybe you're in a part of a Bible study or a small group, and... Or maybe they call you on the phone even. And as you're talking with them, they begin to express to you a recent failing, a recent struggle with sin. And as they talk about it, it you, you begin to notice that they're not trying to make excuses, they're not trying to blame shift, and they're actually using biblical terms and, and calling sin, sin. They're talking rightly of it. You, you begin to pick up on and what you hope are the evidences of a genuine godly sorrow and repentance. And, and yet, for all of that, they're very discouraged. And their discouragement lies in the fact that while they're convicted and while they know that what they're doing is wrong and while they've been crying out to the Lord in prayer, they find themselves again and again and again embroiled, caught in the same struggle, the same sin, same trial, and, and they don't see much, if any, progress in their life over the last months and years. That can be discouraging. And they're turning to you saying, what do I do? Help. What would you say? What would you say to a brother or sister who knows what the Lord thinks of their sin? That's not, that's not their failing. They, they know that what they're doing is wrong. And they know what God wants them to do. That's not the problem either. And they're convicted. They desire to change. But somehow, change hasn't come. And they're growing more and more discouraged, possibly despairing, under the weight of conviction. What would you say to help them? I think this is a place where a lot of Christians can find themselves being, if we're honest. And I think that probably some helpful but yet somewhat stock answers might be some of the following. You know, tell them to pray about it. Read your Bible. Make sure you're going to church regularly, get in a small group, or talk to one of the pastors and elders. Or maybe you'd encourage them to seek accountability. Or maybe you'd give them a Christian book to read on the topic of something they're struggling with. And then there's always, if none of that works, the classic, well, thank you for sharing, I'll be praying for you which I trust we mean sincerely, but that's good as far as it goes. That those are all good answers as far as it goes. There are also some answers you might give that maybe aren't so helpful. Um, Half-truths, mixed advice. Maybe you'd say something like this. And this usually comes from a desire to, to help somebody who's discouraged. We want to make them feel better. We, we don't want to see them down. And so you might say something like, well, the Lord understands, and he doesn't care. He knows we sin, and he saved us apart from works. Nothing you can do will make him love you any more or less. There's a bunch of half-truth there. Or don't worry about it. Your heart wants to obey. That's all that matters. I mean, after all, you don't want to be legalistic. 
Or maybe you'd say something like this, well, you just need to let go and let God. Stop trying so hard. Just rest in your salvation. Or, and this was an answer in Paul's day that he had to deal with, let us sin that grace may abound. The more you sin, the more God's grace is put on display for forgiving it. That was actually an answer that Paul had to refute in Romans 6. So what would you say? Are these the answers that we might use? Is there anything else? Well, I think the scripture does give us some clear answers. And today, God willing, we'll see that while on the one hand, the scriptures do warn us repeatedly about the very great and real danger that we will not take our struggle with sin seriously enough, that we'll treat it lightly, that we'll make peace with our sin. On the other hand, the scriptures offer us clear practical instruction, and they give us real hope in how to change. You see, God has not left us simply with some list of do's and don'ts that we're then expected to figure out how to implement, that we're supposed to just sort of figure out somehow, grit our teeth, and do. Rather, God in his spirit and his word has given us his promise and his pattern and his power to change. If you think back to that passage we looked at in, in the pastorals, familiar passage, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures is inspired of God and profitable to teach, to rebuke, to correct, and to train in righteousness. There's four at least uses of scripture. Teaching, showing us what it is we need to do, showing us what it is that God commands of us, showing us who he is. Rebuke, correcting, convicting us when we fail. But in the example I gave, the, the person's been taught. They know what they're supposed to do, and they've been convicted. They, they feel the weight and the burden and the discouragement. Well, thankfully, Paul says that's not all Scripture is useful for. It's powerful to help us change. It's a word used for mending of nets. Scripture can help us implement. God has given us in his word instruction on, on what to do, how to apply change. This morning, we're, we're going to look at a biblical process of change. We're going to find it primarily in, in Ephesians 4. Thankfully, God has given us, I think, clear, practical instruction. But as we move towards our text, I, I want to review. We are, after all, in a series, and, and a series, we're building on things. And there's a reason message three, this third week, is the third week and not the first week. So by way of review, if you look on the notes, the first week, we looked at 1 John 1, 5 to 10. And I just want to highlight two points we got from that. One, how we deal with our sin is of critical importance. If you'll remember in 1 John 1, 5 to 10, John shows us the glory of God's at stake in how we deal with sin. Our ongoing relational fellowship with God is at stake. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in the light, we deceive ourselves and do not practice the truth. Our fellowship with one another is at stake, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, implying if we're not, we don't have fellowship with one another. And ultimately, a pattern, a, a habit, a lifestyle of not dealing with sin, not admitting sin, not repenting of sin, shows that we are not born of God. If anyone says they're without sin, they make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So this, this, this topic of what, what do believers do with their sin? How do, we, how do we 
change is important. The other truth we got from that passage was the importance of confession. There's a promise from God that if we will confess our sins, if that is our pattern, if that is our habit, he is faithful, he is just, he is good to forgive us. And we learned that to confess means to say the exact same thing that God says about our sin. It's to say the same thing, it's to agree. And so one of the steps we've got to do if we're going to start dealing with our sin is begin to speak of it rightly, both to God and to each other. And we have this whole lingo for the way we describe our own sin. Other people tell lies, we stretch the truth, right? Other people steal, we borrow and forget. And so one of the first steps is beginning to name things, speak of things rightly in biblical categories, confessing to God, agreeing with Him, and confessing to each other. And then last week, Pastor Daniel opened up 2 Corinthians 7, and and we learned at least two things there. The first, that not all sorrow over sin pleases God. Not all sorrow is godly. Paul identifies a worldly sorrow, and we can all think of people we know who who have been grieved and broken and in tears over their sin, but it's primarily because of the consequences they reap. You think of Judas. Judas and Peter, both in the same night, grievously betrayed their Lord. Judas selling him, Peter publicly disowning him with curses. Both men very sorry, both men weeping tears. One man hangs himself and goes straight to hell. The other repents, is restored by the Lord, and ends up writing two books of the New Testament. Not all sorrow is godly. Just because we're sorry is inconclusive. What we learned is that repentance, godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to salvation, bears a clear, demonstrable fruit. Paul, a consonant away, based on the report of Titus, can say, you've demonstrated yourself clear in the matter. So genuine repentance will bear fruit. And we looked at those seven characteristics, earnestness, zeal, longing, indignation, vindication, And we learned what a heart of repentance looks like. Well, this week, we're going to look at the biblical process of change. And the reason why we started where we started is what I'm going to say today isn't going to be of any benefit unless it's applied to a repentant person, a person who who wants to do what is right. This is about applying repentance this week. What do you do? And, and so it presupposes that we are confessing our sins, speaking rightly of it. It pre- presupposes that we are wanting to change. It presupposes that. Okay, then what do you do? Well, before we dive into Ephesians 4, keep your thumb there. I want you to turn to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. There's a principle that Jesus gives us here that I think is very, very important. And as I said in the introduction, on the one hand, the scripture warns us we don't deal with our sins seriously enough, and on the other hand, there's hope and encouragement. So here's the warning. Here's the principle in the Sermon on the Mount, very familiar passage. And one of the things I love about our Lord is he speaks so simply, and he speaks so clearly. And we're going to read this, and you're going to see what it says, and it's going to be clear what it says, and it's going to be tough. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. This is our Lord speaking to the multitude. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, 
that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. And I call this a principle of radical amputation. That's the blanks there, the principle of radical amputation. Now, I, I don't think Jesus is telling us to go get knives and, and, and mutilate ourselves. Sadly, some of the church fathers took him literally, and, and um, well, we won't go into that, but some people have taken this very literally. But I think the point is this. What Jesus is saying is that we can never become too rigorous or too extreme in our fight against sin. We must always, in other words, be willing to go a step further if necessary. There's never a point where we get to say, well, I've done all I can do. There's nothing more I can do. This sin is still having dominion over me. I guess I'll just have to trust the Lord to forgive me. No. Have you cut off your hand yet? There's more you can do. Have you plucked out your eye yet? There's more you can do. The Lord hasn't set a bar of some reasonable amount of exertion. Rather, he calls us to do whatever it takes. And I want you to notice the stakes the Lord puts on this. He doesn't put on this the stakes of rewards in heaven or the fellowship. It's life or death. Jesus is saying, and in the context here, it's about lust. If you're not willing to radically deal with your lust, you will perish in hell. Read it. That's what he says. Take it up with the text, not me. That's what he says. It is better... It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. That, clearly, that is what he is saying. And we get uncomfortable with that, but it's what he says. Not only is that what Jesus says, I want you to see that this is the uniform testimony of Scripture. And there's a tension here, and we've talked about this before. On the one hand, we are freely saved by grace through faith. And yet, what those who the Lord saves, he gives a new heart and a new spirit such that they desire to obey, and he gives us his promises and as we go further this morning, we'll see them such that when someone doesn't embrace that, it shows over time they don't have a new heart. They don't have a new spirit. It's not that you're saved by doing these things, but you prove you're saved by doing these things. So just listen to some of these. I've written the text out underneath. I just want to read some of them to you. I want you to get that what Matthew 5 says about the importance of our willing to be radical and zealous in our fight against sin is not some isolated passage. Luke 9, 23 to 24. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Life and death stakes on whether we are willing to be crucified. Because, of course, when Jesus said this, the cross wasn't something you wore around your neck. It was something you were nailed to. Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He talks to a group of mixed people guilty of all types of sins. And he says, that's who you were. And something happened to you. It changed you. It's not how you live anymore. And the people that live that way consistently, they will perish. Because they demonstrate they have not been washed, sanctified, and justified. Or Galatians 5, 19 to 24. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You getting this theme? And get the implications of Paul warning. I warned you like I warned you before. Don't be deceived. Paul expects that we're going to want to believe you can do both. Paul anticipates it. That, that's why he says things like, don't let anyone deceive you. I'm warning you like I warned you before. And so if we've found some way to sort of fit living like the world, but I believe in Jesus and I'm okay, Paul says, uh-uh, let's keep going. Ephesians 5, 3 to 6. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Are you starting to get this clear, uniform testimony? Yes, we are freely saved by grace. Yes, we are not saved by works. But the work that God does in those who are saved is such they can no longer habitually and consistently live in sin. And anyone who says they know him and habitually and consistently lives in sin does not and will not live. Or to put it simply, Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And the reason I put this up front again is this good news that comes now in the remainder of the message is only good news for those who want to change. It's only good news for those who want to do something. Like I said earlier, how to change is only going to help those who are, have been convicted, who have been instructed in what God's word says. And so I want to remind you, in case you're feeling lethargic, in case you're feeling lukewarm and casual about your sin, be warned. Be afraid. If sin is your friend, then God is your enemy. So Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. How then do we change? How do we, how do we put into practice what is in our hearts? When, when we've been convicted by God's word, when we've been broken and wounded by it, when we have been stripped down so that we have the broken spirit and the contrite heart which the Lord will not despise, then what? Then what? And in Ephesians, Paul 
like in many of his letters, starts with three chapters of doctrine. The first half of Ephesians is full of propositions, statements about what is, what has been done, what is true about us. And then in chapter 4, he switches from propositions to the application, imperatives. Therefore, because of all this truth, here's what you need to do. And he does it in a series of walk commands. You can see it in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a worthy manner. Our passage, starting in verse 17, we're to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. 5.1, 5.2, I mean, we are to walk in love. 5.8, walk as children of light. And 5.15, walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so Paul breaks his application into these sections of walking, how you conduct yourself. We're going to look at the second one. It's the second walk command and the instructions that follow that will give us a pattern for change. So let's read Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. Now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. So he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And in this section, in this second walk command, Paul gives us a biblical process of change. And if you look on your notes, that that three-way arrow, I like to think of this as as a, a method or a plan of change that has three spokes there's three areas that we've got to be focusing on. If, if you've tried change and it's been failing, I would encourage you to consider whether one or two or three of these has been neglected. And if, you, if you've spent much time with me, you're probably familiar with them. I'll, I'll tell you the three blanks right now. It's put off, renew, and put on. Put off, renew, and put on. But before we get to that, I just want to look at what Paul says here. In verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus Christ. And so Paul, writing his letter, pauses and doesn't want to assume the congregation he's speaking to are all Christians, that they all know the Lord. I I don't want to make that assumption either. 
And all that's about to follow and all the encouragement and all the help applies to those who know the Lord by faith. And so I just want to challenge you, ask you, invite you now. Do you know the Lord? Have you been taught Christ? Have you received Christ? Have you, have you heard about him and taught in him that, that we are all sinners? We've, we just read List upon list upon list of things that God is angry at, things that invite his wrath, things that if we live in them and practice them will assure us that we will perish. And yet the difficulty is all of us in our natural selves, we do those things. I mean, Jesus says, forget what you actually do. If you're just looking and lusting, you're guilty of heart adultery. Well, those types of standards, we all fail. We all are condemned. And the teaching of Christ, the good news of Christ, is that God sent his son. We sang about it this morning. He died for us. He lived the perfect life for us. He was crucified, dead, and buried on the third day. He rose again. By turning to him in faith, by turning to him from whatever else you're building your life on, whatever else you're giving yourself to, and turning to him and, and crying out in faith, we are saved, and we are given a new heart, and we are given his spirit, and we're given his promises Maybe, maybe the reason you're having a hard time struggling with sin is you're dead in sin, and you don't know the Lord. And, and, and if that's where you're at, his word to you now is come, look, believe, trust, learn of Christ. But now for the rest of us, here's Paul's instruction after he gives that aside on how they are to grow. We'll start with put off, put off. Off. This is probably the most obvious of all of the three. If you're doing something bad, stop it. Stop doing it, right? Parents tell that to their children. Stop it. Um, amen. Or is it just my children that need to be told that? Um, put off. And Paul uses the metaphor of a garment, putting on, taking off a garment, taking off an old cloak. And he... And he's basically calling us to be what God has made us to be. There's this tension in Paul of be what you are. Because God has made you new, act like you are made new. And the, the challenge for us, though, is that old sinful patterns of behavior are difficult to put off. Old sinful patterns of behavior can be challenging. You know, the, the passage in Jeremiah 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. And we can sometimes think that's talking about the, the sort of the sinfulness of our hearts. But John Calvin, I think, rightly points out that the key word here is accustomed. Yes, it's true. The sinfulness of our hearts makes change difficult. But habit and pattern an habituated response also are very difficult to overcome. And where we have years and years of sinful patterns, sinful responses, it is difficult to put off. I mean, if it were only as simple as saying, oh, I just need to stop getting angry, then there wouldn't be an eight-week sermon series on dealing with sin. It's hard. You know, 2 Peter 2.14 talks about people having eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, they entice unsteady souls, they have hearts trained in greed. And we can train ourselves in sin. We can learn sinful behavior and sinful patterns. And so stopping something that's a knee-jerk reaction, stopping something that has become second nature is hard. But he tells us that we need to put off, to take it off. 
And this will require discipline and training. Make no mistake, this will be hard. This is why we started with Jesus talking about cutting off your hand, plucking out your eye. It's going to take resolve. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul, using a sports analogy, compares himself to the training, the rigorous training of an athlete. I would suggest to you, for anyone here who's done sports, the Lord is expecting and calling upon you to work as hard or not harder than you ever did to, to win a golden cup or championship. I mean, think of the hours we've put in, our kids put into that. And Paul says, that's all for perishable things. Not bad things, perishable things. It gets convicted when we sort of measure, okay, how, how seriously do we take our fight against sin versus how seriously do we get to take the state championship? It gets convicting. Paul in 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 8, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself. Greek word, gymnazio. Another athletic training word. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So practically, what does that look like? That means, as you're looking at some area of sin in your life, whether it's your temper, whether it's lust, whether it's lying, whatever it is, get practical about what you're going to do to stop doing it. Make it harder to do things. You know, when I, when I tried to lose some weight, this year, one of the things we got rid of is the junk food. A, a, a practical put-off is get it out of the house, right? That's obvious. I mean, if you really want to take it seriously, get rid of it. You know, for some people, that might mean getting rid of their smartphones. Because a smartphone gives you 24-hour, completely zero accountability access to anything your heart desires. For some people, that might mean driving a different route home from work. For some people, that might mean changing some of your circles of friends. The Proverbs say, look, don't be a companion of a man given to anger unless you learn to be like him. If you're struggling with your temper, I would forsake the fellowship of people who struggle with their temper as well, at least for the time being. Get practical. Put off. Put off. And again, this is where that principle of, of radical amputation comes in. This is where it's going to get costly. And we can grumble and say, that sounds hard. I, I want to read to you a few words from, from Puritan John Flavel in his book on keeping the heart about this concept. If we're tempted to think that Jesus is saying to cut off your hand, that, that really changing your life, I mean, for some people, this might mean getting an altogether new job. If your job puts you on the road and in hotel night after night, you may, as a way of putting off, need to find a new vocation. I would suggest that is still less radical than cutting off your hand. This is what John Flavel says. We see mariners in a storm throw overboard the most valuable goods to preserve their lives. We know it is useful for soldiers in a besieged city to destroy the finest buildings outside the wall in which the enemy might take shelter, and no one doubts that it is wisely done. 
Those who have mortified limbs willingly stretch them out to be cut off, and not only thank, but pay the surgeon for doing so. Must God be murmured against for casting over that which would sink you in a storm, for pulling down that which would assist your enemy in the siege of temptation, or for cutting off what would endanger your everlasting life? I think the reason why this notion of radical amputation is hard is because we don't really believe life and death is at stake. Because no one questions the mariners throwing their cargo over. No one, no one questions that. We all recognize in life there are times where people need to cut off limbs. We get that. So we need to practically put off and think practically about it. What, what does that mean for you? What types of activities, what types of temptations, what types of triggers might you need to distance yourself from? And I'm not suggesting that you need to start at the most radical option, but you need to be willing to get there if that's what it takes. Feel free to start at somewhere less radical, but if that doesn't work, ratchet it up. Ratchet it up. The writer of Hebrews says, rebuking his, his listeners, you, you haven't even yet got to the point of shedding your blood in the fight against sin. The New Testament takes this seriously. We've got to put off the old man. Second, renew. And this is the only passive part of this. Um, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And one of the things I want to point out here is that thinking is foundational to all of our doing and all of our feeling. Thinking is at the foundation of all of our doing and all of our thinking. Your emotional life is built upon your thinking life. You just probably aren't aware of it. I use this analogy, but if I open the door, if the doorbell rings and I open the door and there's a masked man with a bloody knife in the, in the doorway, depending on whether or not it's Halloween depends on whether or not I scream like a girl. <laughs> right? See, you, you and I are not aware of this, but we're constantly thinking. We're constantly interpreting our life. We're believing things. We're thinking things. Sure, we may not be actively aware of ourselves doing it, but that's what we're doing. And if you struggle with anger, James says, it's because there are things you want. There are things you expect. There are things you demand. There are things you think you have a right to. And that thinking is fueling anger. And so if we're going to change, it's, it's got to take place in our minds. Notice the, the words for mind and thinking in this section. In verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming, 21, that you have heard of him and were taught in him. Are you noticing the emphasis on the mind and thought? Sometimes it can be too easy just to focus on doing, doing, doing. And we need to be renewed by God's word in our spirits of our minds. We need to be soaking ourselves in truth. Also, this means that change cannot be separated from regular spiritual disciplines, such as prayer, reading your Bible. This is where that first list of answers I gave to my question fit in. Yes, you shouldn't expect any real change if you're not regularly reading the Word, if you're not regularly in prayer, if you're not regularly in fellowship with other believers, if you're not serving and being served, if you're not willing to open yourself up to accountability. Yes, those are the regular, normal means of grace and disciplines of Christians. That is the, the, the environment in which the Lord will renew us. 
And so if you're looking to change and you're not willing to embrace those things, I wouldn't expect to be renewed. So we've we got to aggressively do that as well. Oftentimes when I'm talking to someone struggling, caught in sin, I'll, I'll walk me through your Bible reading. Walk me through your prayer life. Walk me through your fellowship. And I'm fully expecting to find weak spots, spots that are non-existent. That's normally the case. It's rare that I find someone who has a rigorous prayer life and a rigorous Bible reading and rigorous fellowship and commitment and service in the church who's, who's just wide open in some area of their life. It does happen, but it's rare. We've got to be renewed in the spirits of our minds. And, and so again, that might cha- change in, in prioritizing, freeing up space. Um, we, we live in a culture where everyone's running around. You've got the, sort of the quintessential picture of the soccer mom going from sports to oboe to ballet to speech. to And, and life is busy and full. And so church and small group and Awana and Bible study and tough men can... can difficult to find time for. And I'm not saying you've got to do all of that, but make sure there's time to serve, to be served, to gather with believers as needed, to, to build deeper relationships. Third, put on. Put on. And this is probably the most underdeveloped and ignored part. This is, this is the part when I first studied this passage that most was new to me. Because obviously you've got to stop doing the bad stuff. And any Christian knows you got to go to church, you got to read your Bible, you got to pray. That, that's why those are the stock answers. They're good answers, but they're stock answers. But notice what he also says in verse 24 to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You remember the, the parable that Jesus told of a, of, a, of a demon that was in a house and he got driven out, but no one came to take up residence, the spirit, and he comes back with seven others, and the latter state of the house is worse than the first, we can struggle so much with not doing, with not doing, with not doing, that we miss that change hasn't happened until change happens. You go, what does that mean? What I mean is, until you're actually doing something differently, ceasing from doing something is not change. You might do it again. Really, you haven't changed until you're doing something different. You're thinking something different. You've put on Christ and some new Christ-like behavior. Think of it this way. Any area of sin in your life is an area that you are not like Jesus. And so the question you've got to ask yourself is, what is Jesus like? I need to be doing that. I need a strategy for that. So I want to ask you a question. When is a liar no longer a liar? And when is a thief no longer a thief? The answer is not, well, when they stop lying, they could be asleep. Right? Thieves will oftentimes go for months in between jobs and theft. Now read this. Read, read what follows. Verse 25 and following. Therefore, and you've got to start looking for this in the Bible. And once you start looking for it, you'll see it everywhere. Don't do this. Do this. Put off. Put on. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Speak the truth. Be a truth speaker, which is more than not lying. Much more than not lying. We don't have time to go into what it means to be a truth speaker. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Instead of fuming and, and, and boiling and having that slow build that over days and weeks builds up, deal with issues of anger quickly. Every day, 
Release that steam. If you need to talk to somebody, talk to somebody. If you need to get on your knees and pray, get on your knees and pray. Deal with anger quickly. Don't let it build up. That's the put on. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. Rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Here there's two put-ons. Don't steal. Work hard. Be generous. 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. You've got a potty mouth. You, got, you like to swear a lot. It's not enough to stop saying those four-letter words. You need to start blessing people. You need to start thinking about encouraging people. You need to start focusing on how can I build people up. And if all you're focusing on is, oops, I said it again, it slipped out, I stubbed my toe and I cursed, maybe you're not spending the time, you're not stubbing your toe, actively working on blessing people with your words. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. There's the put off. But be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so what we need to learn to do here is search the scriptures to learn what the corresponding put-ons are because they're not always intuitive. Like consider the, the one about the thief. I think most of us could have guessed stop stealing, work hard, but be generous. That's interesting. And, of course, that starts to shed light on why is it someone might steal. Well, it seems like, from this passage, laziness, a, a lack of willingness to do hard work is, is one factor. And the other is selfishness, isn't it? It's more important that I have it than you have it. So if I'm really going to change from being a thief, I need to get a good work ethic, and I need to change from being self-focused to being generous. That's when real change has happened. You've got to search the scriptures. Keep your eyes open for them. I got them underlined whenever I see them. Don't do this, do this. Here's another put off, here's another put on. Or go over to chapter 5. Another one that's not as obvious is, is filthy talk and coarse language and coarse jesting. Verse 3 of chapter 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead. Let there be thanksgiving. Now, that's really interesting. Is, is Paul saying that cynical, sarcastic, coarse, inappropriate language is really coming out of a heart that is discontent, unthankful? I think he is. I think he is. Isn't that interesting? And we could see example after example after example in the Bible. The word is so rich. It's not simply don't do this, do this. It's, it's pointing at revealing our hearts helping us as we think through it. What does this, what does this say about why I'm given to these things? And point B, we've got to focus on both our thinking and our conduct. You see, as the word lightens up and exposes the put-offs and the put-ons, and as that begins to suggest what's going on, we've got to address and plan in our put-off, put-on, and renew. We've got to address and plan both the actions we're taking and the thinking that's going into it. If, if you're... If your child is struggling with, a, with, with coarse language, yes, they need to learn the self-control not to speak corrupt things, vile things. Yes, they need to learn rather to bless others. But you also need to be getting at them with thankfulness, gratitude to God, and exposing what are, what are the things that are causing them to be discontent 
This is the biblical model of change. We could do this for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And we've got one week to talk about this. I, I want to close with some helpful applications. I, I really want to make this practical. I don't want this to be pie in the sky. Change never happens in the abstract. It never happens in big, vague generalities. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. How many times have you been convicted of something and you think, man, I've got to be more patient? And it doesn't go any further than that, and nothing happens. You've got to get specific. So point help number one. Identify clear, in clear biblical terms, what you need to put off and put on. That's the first step, is use biblical language. I need to stop using my words like drawn swords with my wife. This is what ties, and this is what builds on the last two weeks. This is where confession comes in. Proverbs, there's one whose words are like drawn swords, but the tongue of the wise gives healing. I've, I've, been, I've been using my words as weapons against my wife. I need to stop that. What do I need to put on? I need to put on blessing. I need to put on encouragement. What's that look like practically? I, I need to encourage her. I need to be thankful to her. I need to speak words of life to her and wash her with the word. Okay, great. Let's make a specific, practical, and measurable plan. Specific, practical, and measurable plan. We've already talked about specific. I seem to be kinder to my wife. Nothing is going to happen if that's all I do. Specific. Practical. It needs to be doable. If your plan is, I'm going to read the Bible 27 hours a week. No, you're not. No, you're not. It needs to be practical. It needs to be reasonable. It needs to be realistic. It needs to be doable. It needs to be measurable. It needs to be measurable. You need some way of identifying whether you're succeeding in it. So, so let's take, let's take my, me growing and speaking kindly to my wife. Let's take that practically. What, what might that look like? Okay, practically, measurably. Okay, first, if I catch myself speaking in an unkind, unhelpful, unthankful, unblessing way, I'm going to commit here and now to um, confess it to God and to her. I'm going to let her know of this, and I'm going to invite her, if she catches me, if she thinks my words are unkind, she's to bring it to my attention. Positively, I'm going to make a list this week of 20 things that I'm thankful for about my wife, and I'm going to make a point over the course of this week, and I picked this example from Mother's Day, as she is the mother of my children. I'm going to make it a point this week to tell her those things one by one. That, that might be a practical way doesn't have to be, this isn't the only way, a practical way for me to learn how to bless, encourage, and give words that build up. It's just a simple example of one or two things I could do. You could make the list ten times longer. I'm going to make sure that in the context of this, I am still reading my Bible regularly, and I'm praying regularly, and I'm gathering with the saints regularly. So I need to make a specific, practical, and measurable plan. So if I just said, I'm going to say some encouraging things to my wife, well, how many? I said 20. Now, now there's a measuring stick that we can measure how I've succeeded or failed. Notice that the generality lacks that. I've got to say some encouraging things this week. I'm going to make a list. I'm going to write it down. And then I'm going to, over the course of the week, that, that would be a, a measurable way of doing things. And, and again, this isn't the only way. This is a way. This is a plan. This is my plan. My plan doesn't have to be your plan. Third, invite help and accountability as you put your plan into practice. It gives it some teeth, doesn't it, to let people know what you're planning on doing. 
Uh, and again, this is just a matter of whether you want to be serious. Do you want to just murmur and grumble and sort of weakly fight with sin, or do you want to kill it? I remember talking to a young man struggling with what he was looking at on the internet, and they have these programs, Covenant Eyes. If you struggle with that, Covenant Eyes is a wonderful program. The church would love to subsidize the first few months of your Covenant Eyes subscription. It's not very expensive. It's great. And what it does is it sends a list of every site you've looked at, arranged in what they view to be the most dangerous, to whoever you want to send it to. Um, as a matter of precaution, uh, the pastors and staff here have it. My list goes to Jeff Zimmerman and my wife. That, if I ever feel weak or, 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 or consider doing something foolish at 2 in the morning if I can't sleep, trust me, knowing that my wife and one of the elders here is going to see anything I look at is very effective. And I remember telling this young man who was struggling with what he was looking at, look, you want an effective help, make your father-in-law your accountability partner. Now, so here's my question. How serious do you want to take it? I'm pretty sure that'll get the job done, right? And we laugh because we know that not many people would want to do that, which really begs the question and gets back to the cutting off the hand and plucking out the eye. Maybe you don't start with a father-in-law's your accountability partner. Maybe you start with your good buddy. But if you find that your good buddy, you're not really afraid of him finding out, ratchet it up. Ratchet it up. Fourth, prayerfully reevaluate and adjust your plan as needed. Don't expect that the first plan you come up with is magically going to work. We've talked about this whole getting more radical. Maybe you start here and you find out, man, that wasn't nearly serious enough. I need to take some steps and, and crank it up some. Or maybe you overshoot. Maybe you're the guy who, like, I'm getting rid of my computer, my phone. I'm going to live in a cave. Okay, okay, you can, you can ratchet it down a little bit. It's Okay. And so the, the key here is that you're working on a plan. You're working on a strategy. You're, you're, you're aggressively putting off, putting on, renewing. You're, you're, talk it through with somebody. Tweak it out. Reevaluate prayerfully. So you get something that is giving you growing victory, growing success. And finally, as much as I've emphasized the need to fight sin and to war with it and not just to play around with it and certainly not to make peace with it, don't focus exclusively on the results. The Lord is, and that's why I said earlier, it's a half-truth. The Lord is after your heart. And he desires to teach us how to fight well. Really what matters is growing and making war with sin, growing and fighting better, getting more victories. It's, it's about the direction you're headed. It's about the growing fruit you see bearing. It's not about a bar of achievement. And so this is really about growing and in, in fighting well, growing and making war growing in walking my faith, growing in Christ-like behavior. Don't just, don't just be so discouraged by what you actually do as if, you know, um, oh, if I, do it, if I do this three times in a week, then I'm not a Christian. No, no, that's the wrong way to approach it. This is about learning to fight well. And it is about growing in victory. But this is the pattern that, that the scriptures give us. This is this is the instruction we get. Paul lays the same thing out in Colossians 3 as well. But we've got to put off the old man, the old behavior. We've got to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We've got to put on new Christ-like behavior. And, and, and I've seen time and time again my own testimony, my own life, as I counsel others, that God blesses this. It works. It really does work. If you're sitting here today and you're struggling, you're convicted of something that you haven't seen any victory in, I'd encourage you to try to do this. Make a plan. Get specific. Work your plan. Tweak your plan. Invite others to help. And submit yourself to the Lord who will transform us. There's much more we could say, but we will 
draw to a close this morning. Let's close in a word of prayer as I call the worship team up for our final song.